start like an introduction mm. pete is absent and he is in lieu in the meantime how's it going michael good man yeah living the dream it's a long walk from the car park to the beach on a hot day tell you that <laughs> that's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll oh, it's a long way that. to the shop if you want a sausage roll <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a long way to Damn the it. shop yeah yeah so today fellas we got russ sbriglia who teaches at seton hall Mm -hmm. uh, which fun fact uh is where tony soprano went to university for uh half half a semester yeah nice (laughs) (laughs) hey russ yeah hey russ how's it going hey russ hey what's up we were just introducing you uh by uh just saying that you you describe me. You teach you teach at Seton Hall University, right? Seton Hall College, and university, yeah. University, okay. Yeah. And uh, other than being it being you know notable because you work there, it's also notable because Tony Soprano went there for half a semester. That's true. That is true. <laughs> yeah. Do you want? Do you know what he took while while he was there? History. Was it criminal justice? <laughs> Political science? What was it? Was, it? He was majoring in gobbledygool Tra- studies. <laughs> Trash <laughs> delivery. <laughs> no, oh. really, no, do you guys know? I don't remember. I, I actually don't, remember don't know what he was. I don't even know if he declared a major. Maybe he was psychology. Oh, he did psychology. I know he yeah, took yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that was it. It was yeah. psychology. I haven't done I haven't done I haven't done the 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 rewatch of it um like everyone else has been doing. I haven't I mean I watched it originally, but I haven't I haven't rewatched it and and you know. You know, you know, watching it to scour the the very subtle, if not non-existent, socialist references in the TV show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As Twitter would have you believe. We were we were also mentioning that when we so when we we met you in at Seton Hall last yeah. uh, November, I believe. Yeah. Zizek, uh when he met us, he was of course very polite, uh, and he. Uh-huh. My girlfriend was with us and he <laughs> he turns and asks her if she's part of the podcast and she's like, no, I'm just along for the ride. And he says, you know, back in the days of the Soviet Union, we had a name for someone like you. Uh, and then like Todd nods along, nods along and he's like, fellow traveler. And then Zizek like leans back and he's like, yeah, when the when the revolution comes, you'll be the first to be liquidated. <laughs> and we all get laugh about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> And Russ was one of our first interviews, early interviews, and we talked uh, at length about object-oriented ontology. If anyone's interested in that, they can go back yep. to August 2020. Yeah. Uh, but we're not talking about object-oriented ontology August today. We're talking. That's when it was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, we're talking. We're talking about your book. I think it came out in 2017. Everything 
you always wanted to know about literature were, were afraid to ask level Zizek. Yes. Would, how do you think uh, like Zizek informs the, like uh, the study of, of English or literature in, in your context? Well, um, it's interesting because everyone in literature departments knows who Slavoj Zizek is, whether they love him or hate him or are indifferent. But the consensus, and I mean, look, he's made, uh, he's about to make a third Pervert's Guide film, right? You guys have, have, been, have interviewed Sophie Fines. Um, and, you know, I think Slavoj has even said in the past, like what he really wanted to do when he was, I don't know, teens, early 20s was was to be a filmmaker and, yeah. and, and to do film. And um, and so because those I mean, the movies themselves are great, but because I mean, when I teach, you know, ego, superego and id to a class, um, especially if it's an undergrad class that's, you know, has very little ex- has had presumably very little exposure to these concepts. You know, I stay as far away as possible from the, you know, the um, the iceberg <laughs> metaphor, <laughs> right, where um, which, you know, is the most. Uh, it's kind of like the like for Freud, that's kind of like the Hegelian misreading of the dialectic as thesis, mm. antithesis, synthesis, mm, sort of ego, id, superego, yeah. and 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 the the iceberg where you know part of it is unconscious but not beneath the surface. And I just like show the, the five minute yeah. clip where he's in you know the the Bates house talking about how at the main level of the house Norman is you know functions as a regular you know normal integrated person. That's the ego. Um, above is the maternal superego, right? The voice that is bombarding you with the injunction to enjoy and at the same time prohibition. And then when he, you know, carries his mother's corpse into the basement, right? That's that's the id into the into the fruit cellar. And so, you know, you show that or you show, you know, his, um, some clips of him talking about the birds and, and psychoanalyzing the birds. And um, even if it's in a literature class and even if you're not, you know, watching film, it's still it's it's such a a great visual presentation and a use of film to illustrate these concepts that I think for most people their rea- their immediate reaction is you know well what does especially if they haven't read a lot of Zizek well what you know isn't he all about film or mm-hmm. if he talks about anything having to do with you know the arts it mm-hmm. would be film more than anything else and I that's that's obviously true if you read if you read his books but. Um, what I found again and again was that, uh, I mean, I haven't done an actual quantitative, you know, uh, search, you know, keyword search or anything like that, but he talks about literature just as much or nearly just as often as he does film and uses literary examples to illustrate, um, you know, Lacanian or Hegelian principles. So that, that was one of the things that I, that I hoped the book would do was kind of, um, diffuse or like sort of put to bed this this myth that you know Zizek you know is not a thinker or theorist of 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 literature and also literary studies in general discussion of psychoanalytic concepts tends to be like psychoanalyzing the characters or the author finding the castrated you know subjects etc but then there's also the you know the the how it's made use of Zizek's work which is obviously not very much the field of literature studies um but when thinking about Zizek's use of literature uh, like you were also just saying you know we have like one thing that strikes you I think is that 
he tends to, although he references Beckett and Kafka and Shakespeare and these 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 types of writers, uh, he also is drawing from unliterary examples. In, in a sense, he kind of has a bad taste. Uh, yeah, which is also not exactly typical of that field, right? <laughs> yeah. Detective fiction, crime novels, melodrama, sci-fi, etc. So there's something about like his bad taste, you know, in, in scare quotes that can help us in understanding of of art or, or philosophy. Yeah, well, that was kind of the hook into my intro is that there is this collection from I think it's almost 10 years old now called the Zizek Dictionary. And, um, you know, there are many people in Zizek studies who wrote, you know, sort of like glossary length, uh, you know, entries on fantasy or desire or stuff like that. But so Slavoj wrote the entry for Zizek <laughs> at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. And he it's a short little piece, but he talks about I mean, he leads with his bad taste in that he'd much rather read, you know, um, a novel by Daphne du Maurier than by Virginia Woolf. Right. Um, Similar to how he said, I mean, these are two literary examples, but he says, you know, Beckett, he prior, he says Beckett is much better than, you know, than Joyce, who who is, who is pretentious. Which is a pretty edgy. Yeah. 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 He said that, he said that. um, (laughs) And it's a Hitchcock example, right, Russ? Uh, Demoria, yeah, yeah, yeah. like with uh, yeah, yeah exactly. with the birds, Rebecca the birds and, and Rebecca. Birds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he I I'm basic. He, I didn't know. I didn't know that shit. That those were based on novels. I mean, no, idiot. but <laughs> he 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 made that he made that point when he was at Seton Hall. He said he said something like as a throwaway line, like you know Beckett, who's far preferable to that pretentious Joyce, and my my colleague who's <laughs> yeah. a modernist, like you know, pretended to get up and, and, and storm out. Um, <laughs> and then he, he like apologized to her. I mean, to her after where he's like, I hope you weren't a fan, but um, uh, I, I do think, you know, th- this is another, I, I like this question. Cause I actually think a similar thing goes on with, with his discussion of film. Um, mm. I mean, you know, he's got a book on uh, Christoph Kieslowski. He's written about, and, 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 you know, he, he's done all these analyses of, of Hitchcock and David Lynch and um, Kieslowski and um, who else? Um, Tarkovsky, right? Stalker and, and, Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Solaris are some of his favorite films, but, you know, he's also famous for, you know, having hot takes on blockbusters, right? Yeah. Um, Jaws, Alien, wrote... Matrix, Kung Fu Panda. Yeah, Kung Fu, Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> he just wrote something. He just wrote something on Barbie. Yeah, um, I don't know if he'd see if he's if he's seen Barbie, but he's written something on Barbie. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, but but I do think it's more pronounced in the case of of literature, right? Um, you're you're just as likely, or maybe more likely, to get you know a discussion of. Pet Cemetery, like a Stephen King novel or mm. a Patricia Highsmith novel or story, um, as you are, you know, um, Melville or Beckett or Shakespeare, right? And so I think that 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 sort of um traversal of the the high low uh divide yeah. is something that categorizes his 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 philosophy and his theory more generally. And I think that it, you know literature there is kind of no exception, but that could be a reason as to why you know if you're a very I don't know serious <laughs> traditional literary scholar and you read some of this stuff you're like 
he's talking Daphne du Maurier over over Wolf. Like that just entirely just, you know, this guy's an idiot. Like let's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> anything yeah, yeah. he says after that, we can just discount, right? Um, so so I so maybe that's maybe that's part of the sort of uh you know uh reticence because I think even even now he's probably and this is what he is more than he is a, a he's not a scholar of, of of literature but he's just known more as a you know cultural and and film you know cultural and film theorist because mm. he does have snobby or what would you call it like highbrow taste in in music like classical music and opera yeah. opera yeah he's i mean like you know the stuff he he has um i actually don't know if anyone let me see i have it here somewhere it's this weird little book that he wrote um with the published in in germany um the Va- the wagnerian sublime oh, no. for oh, lacanian yeah. for i'm trying to get it to fo- four lacanian readings of classic opera um it's a it's a little book but but yeah that's i mean he he co-wrote that that book with um with 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 Mlad and Delar, right opera's second death mm. and so yeah mm-hmm. that's that's a good point is that when it comes to um to I mean, music, it's almost like the high, one of the highest art forms is he he's interested in, you know, Wagnerian opera. But then you'd have like Leibach and Ramstein. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it's, I mean, and that goes back to when he was, you know, a dissident in the eighties and he was covering, you know, Leibach and, mm. and, and, and the punk movement. And so, um, yeah, that he's, he's had that interest for, you know, over, over like 40 years now and you see it <laughs> yeah. still to this day when he's you know he's talking about you know he's analyzing the lyrics of new you know rammstein uh you know songs so yeah he's he's very open about you know whereas other people would you know never admit that you know they would much rather read a demori a, a literature scholar would never admit that they'd much rather read a demorier novel than read i don't know to the lighthouse or or mrs dalloway but he just he just owns it and i think that that's um He'd probably hate the word authenticity because he would say there's nothing authentic right. about me or about my presentation. Right. But right. but but he's wrong because it does it does ring, you know, uh, uh, authentically. And the the love that he has for um, uh, Shakespeare and for Beckett, I think, if you know, when you whenever I mean, you guys have probably experienced this, but whenever you sort of talk to Slavoj in person, he already has. He kind of joins, you're kind of joining the conversation in media and like, so he'll just come on, you know, you'll just start talking about, about, you know, um, a performance of Titus Andronicus or something that, that, that he'd seen. Um, And so he, he is, you know, legitimately, you know, interested in and and passionate about, about this stuff. So Mm -hmm. in some way, it's a way to avoid pretension, but it's also about these kind of sites of intense enjoyment. Yeah. And I think that that's why I think that's actually why he's so fascinated by, um, you know, dime novels or detective fiction or romance novels is because, um, I mean, we kind of said that I think we'll kind of mention this at the outset. He's more interested. He's more interested in form than he and structure as any good, you know, Lacanian analyst would be than he is about the i don't know the psyche of the individual character that's not to say that um he doesn't address that in his interpretations or analyses of of literature but um because these these works are in such you know um 
clearly defined genres, they have an, an iterable structure where you can see, right. um, you know, it helps to really, um, you know, principle uh, to put these these principles in kind of stark relief from other genres. And so, not that that makes it sort of easily mappable, but the way in which, um, I don't know, genre fiction has certain expectations and the way in which the structures of those um the characters kind of fit into them right that's the whole thing about lacan's interpretation of uh this uh the um post purloined letter it's like it has nothing to do with the interiority of the characters in line with lacan's point that the unconscious is outside what happens is that the characters come to occupy different place different um positions in the structure in the structural relation over the course of the of the story and that's what sort of changes the character as opposed to you know some sort of deep interiority or, right. or you know some sort of um psychobiography or something of the characters right yeah mm -hmm. right so how would you define like the like the current like mainstream uh theoretical situation in english like literary criticism yeah well it's interesting because and this is this is this could be another reason as to why um, Zizek isn't as big in literary studies as he is in, say, film studies, is that uh, and I talk a little bit about this in the introduction to the book. But, you know, the heyday of Lacanian psychoanalysis in English departments was the mid to late 70s through the mid 80s, really, maybe even shorter than that, um, because. That was part of, I mean, it was taught in the United States, maybe in, you know, Britain as well. I'm not sure about, about Australia, but, um, and Slavoj often talks about this, about like post-structuralism as this construction of the Anglo-American gaze that doesn't actually, didn't actually exist in France. Like Deleuze, Lacan, Foucault, um, Althusser, like all these people, they do have, um, you know, commonalities, but they can't simply be reduced or, or you know um, placed under this umbrella term post-structuralism which is why he often says you know post-structuralism doesn't exist but if you're in a an english department you know if you look at a, in, like introduction to literature or introduction to literary studies i'm teaching one this um this fall and you get to psychoanalysis um you have the psychoanalysis portion of the book and it's about um you know lacan is essentially philosopher of language um, yeah. and that's, and that's kind of true, but it's also just about, it's, it's, it's really stuck in the, the early Lacan of imaginary symbolic and which is more about, you know, the, the sort of, uh, the linguistic relation. And of course, this is not to discount, um, you know, semiotics or, you know, or signification for Lacan. It's, 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 it's absolutely crucial, but, um, it, it, it wasn't until people like, um, Slavoj and Joan Kopchak came around um, and started to focus on the like the later Lacan of the where where it's the um, it's the sort of nexus of symbolic and real that's really interesting, which is why it's it's not so much um, signifiers as it is objects, in particular the different sublime objects that occupy the position of the of the objet petit a right mm. um, that 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 Zizek is interested in. And that you see far less of in, uh, in literary studies, not that you don't see it at all. I think, you know, the needle is, is moving in that and has been moving in that direction. But again, like you open these books 
you know, like a sort of in, in, introduction and it, it has nothing to do with, you know, objet art. It's, it's, it's not, it's not about like the, um, it's not as sort of crude as, you know, individual psychologizations of, of, of characters. Um, but, it, but in, it's true in literary studies, what's true of like cultural studies is that we're currently in a moment where the sort of death of the subject is, you know, being celebrated. And so mm-hmm. literary studies is very much in the vein of, um, you know, new materialism, object oriented ontology. I think, I don't know how much longer that trend is, is, is going to last, but I think people are still, still in that. Like, how do we think outside the human? Um, how do we think, you know, post-human ethics to save the uh, environment, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of where, where literary studies is now. Right. Uh, so what is the, incommensurability between hermeneutics and interpretation and how does psychoanalysis figure in there okay well that's a that's a big question (laughs) um well because because psychoanalysis um even even those who you know may have read a lot of zizek and his rejection of lacan or of the understanding of lacan as a post-structuralist um in hermeneutics the, the the idea that psychoanalysis is a hermeneutic is that, okay, there are these, um, and it does get a lot right about psychoanalytic theory, right? So you have the text, and then you have the text's unconscious. I mean, you know, for Jameson, it would be the text's political unconscious, but it doesn't necessarily have to be solely the political unconscious. And then you interpret these symptoms that, you know, arise after a trauma has been repressed, right? So the re- return of the repressed. And there's supposed to be some sort of meaning behind these um, these symptoms, right? Um, but for Lacan, the point is not to um, is, is not to pin a meaning to the symptom. A symptom, and then his later notion uh, of the symptom, right, is is that a symptom is just this this kernel of enjoyment, right? Of jouissance. So an object sort of like thoroughly penetrated with, with enjoyment that is entirely meaningless. And so the role of, so, so what interpretation does versus hermeneutics, and, you know, of course the act of hermeneutics is, um, interpretive, right? If you look up a definition of hermeneutics, interpretation is going to be, you know, <laughs> within the first three or four words of it. But it's the but the role is from a psychoanalytic perspective is less to try to make meaning out of these things or to tie a specific meaning to it, as to locate um, this sort of traumatic kernel of nonsensicalness, um, of 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 nonsense, right? And so that's that's why you know Lacan punned on on jouissance, right? Jouissance, like en- enjoyment, <laughs> mm. um, or we're we're like it's actually the object is so thoroughly um, uh, imbued with or shot through with enjoyment that it overawes any possible sense of of meaning making. So, like the most uh, I'm working on this piece on on. Uh, on Edgar Allan Poe and the and Death Drive, and the notion of of the Raven uh, in the Raven, that term "nevermore" is that that would be that would be a, a, a santom, like quite literally. It doesn't mean anything the way that the uh, that the Raven is is speaking it. Um, the Raven doesn't intend to have any meaning. It's just something being repeated by rote. But 
because the the speaker of that poem gets some sort of melancholic jouissance out of asking questions that repeatedly come back to him with with um nevermore i mean that's he's quite literally enjoying his his symptom there but right. again it's totally non it's a nonsensical kernel of enjoyment so that that would be the difference you know um between a sort of hermeneutical approach which would try to put some sort of imbue the nevermore with some sort of you know deep meaning as opposed to like this is just repetition compulsion it's embracing the the sound tome of the drive and um uh just sort of you know uh enjoying his jouissance to, to, to death right right Yeah, it's like we were talking about earlier is that it, you still see Lacan presented as a post-structural theorist. Right, right. Right. Um, about, you know, the sliding of the signifier as opposed to, again, like in the later Lacan where the signifier is 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 an object or or a stain um, that exceeds, you know, born of an impasse of formalization in the symbolic, right? Um, and so what you're well, you're often a standard literary introduction course. If they, if Lacan is taught, it will almost always be something from the Ecree, which, you know, is, I would say not the best way to introduce Lacan because it's, you know, Lacan was trying to be difficult uh, in those, in those, um, I think Slavoj says this at the outset of his, how to read Lacan book, but the best thing to do is to read a given seminar for not that in an introduction class you have time to assign a full you know lacanian <laughs> seminar but maybe a lesson because they read pretty pretty quickly and much more easily than uh than than the than any of the accre do but you know you're likely to read you know what's whatever is um you know anthologized typically in, in a norton anthology like the mirror stage um signification of the phallus um not much, not much later stuff. And again, it's still focused on this, on this um, imaginary symbolic constellation. And I think, so the Lacan problem would be somebody would be like Lacan, like, like we did that 30 years ago. Like we're, 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 we're at, like we're post, we're post linguistic turn now. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but what, what Zizek, uh, what, I mean, his Lacan is, not entirely inseparable from from but is is totally different from from that from that lacan and so i guess what i mean by lacan problem in that sense is the sort of um predisposition that people have that you know lacanian interpretation of literature and analysis that that heyday came and went you know in the mid 70s it was displaced by new historicism in the early 80s early mid 80s why would we go back to that right yeah cuz in one of your essays, you mentioned that Zizek's been received as Lacan's ambassador, or perhaps yeah. now would be like Hegel's ambassador too. And yeah. I like this implication that there's, through Zizek, there's a kind of Holbinian ambassador where we see thinkers awry through Zizek. Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Uh, no, I, no, that's very nice. I, I, I totally, I totally agree with that. I don't think that, I mean, he... I think that he 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 would argue he would argue that I don't know if he would say like this is Lacan, but he always says 
you know, you need in order to be, I don't know if interesting is the right term, but um, you, he says like, you need a strong interpretation of, of, of a theorist or, of, or, or of a philosopher, right? He says, basically the history, he, he said this in, on multiple um, occasions in multiple venues that the history of philosophy, or it'd be interesting to think of the history of philosophy as a series of misreadings of other philosophers. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, Hegel misread the most like Hegel misread Kant and that's what, you know, gave, gave rise. And so he traces this, this sort of whole, whole history. But I do think that what, what he does is he takes the, the late, not that he would say, I don't think he would even say necessarily that Lacan's, you know, project can be neatly divided into different phases. Although many people make that argument, but it's clear that what he does is he takes the later Lacan of the real and sort of retroactively, you know, uh, reinterprets or redeploys earlier Lacan according to this, um, not that he ever, you know, gets rid of the imaginary in, entirely, right? He has, he, he always talks about the, the Baromian knot of the imaginary symbolic real, right? He has the, um, uh, the notion of there being three reels, right? The imaginary real, symbolic real, and the real real. So it's not that he gets away, he does away with the, with the imaginary, but what he does is he takes Lacan's prioritizing and main focus on the symbolic real constellation and sort of retroactively looks at earlier things like the mirror stage essay, purloined letter, um, seminar on the purloined letter, and sort of reinterprets Lacan through that, through that later, those later insights. In relation to the real, the, that like focus as a kind of literary uh, approach, um, of course, connected to that is uh, Objet A. Um, yeah. So could you explain how maybe those are related in kind of literary terms and how what they bear on like textual analysis? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I think at one point I gave a sort of in that introduction to the book, I give a sort of laundry list of i mean there's far more that you could do but a list of mm -hmm. various objects in literary works that that zizek you know deems uh you know objets ah um and there is there is it doesn't line up with the literary concept necessarily of defamiliarization i think defamiliarization which is a term that comes from the russian formalists um is a nice way of describing what happens when you're confronted with with a real object, you know, capital R real object. Um, but the closest that the you know that the objet petit a comes would be the sublime, which is is a, a hugely prioritized aesthetic category um, in literary. I mean, it's true of, of of art and of film as well. But again, I'd have to actually go and do you know, do some sort of like quantitative research, but uh, I would, if it's not the number one, you know, aesthetic concept, it would definitely be in the top three, I think most written about and most theorized within literature is, is the sublime. Absolutely. Um, especially because, you know, the romantics quite clearly in their engagement with German idealist, you know, philosophy were quite clearly, you know, literal or, you know, um, transposing the sublime into into the literary yeah but of course um the sublime in lacan and i think in hegel can be it's different from the con the standard sort of burkean kantian sublime of you know large terrifying impending imposing objects it 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 can be that but 
you know, it can also be, you know, this is why he likes that phrase, a little, a miserable little piece of the real, depending upon what your desire has, <laughs> has, has sort of generated, right. Um, the, like has anamorphically um, generated, it could be, you know, a common miserable little object that is to, you know, to invoke Lacan's definition of sublimation that one elevates to the, to the dignity of, of the thing. And like, so uh, like the Odra deck, Odra deck in. Yeah, exactly. Kafka that, story, the, right? the sort of the, the sort of creature that is in uh, that, that Kafka uh, tale cares of a family man. Mm. But I'm, I'm currently working through uh, ch- uh, a couple chapters on Melville's novel, Pierre. And that's a novel that is filled with what um, it's filled with, with sublime objects or um, what I, what I've, what I've come to like more than than sublime object actually is um, this notion of uh, that Zizek has a the thing from inner space. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote he wrote a whole essay on he, he uses that that phrase from time to time. But there's a full there's a whole chapter on it. I think it's in the collection titled "Sexuation." Um, yeah, that Renata Salikal uh, edited. But uh, where he says essentially, and it's in, by the way, it's in the uh, pervert's guide to, to cinema where he stands in front of the, um, one of those giant redwoods from vertigo. Yeah. And he says much like, yeah, there you go. That's it. And he says much like, much like um, Moby Dick actually is example. <laughs> that tree is, is a thing from, from, from inner space. Um, it, it, it is a it is a a lowercase real object in the sense that it has an empirical existence, but what makes it a capital R real object is the libido that you know gets externalized or the the sort of that that is extimate in it, right? And so in Pierre, I mean Moby Dick is a great example of something that is both traditionally sublime and a Lacanian um, Hegelian sublime, the Moby the actual white whale. Um, but in in that novel Pierre, like there's a there's this weird stone. It's kind of like like when he talks about um, picnic at Hanging Rock. There's this weird ge- geological stone formation that that doesn't. Let me see if I can actually find find a picture of it. Where somehow <laughs> it actually is staying above above the ground above ground. But so it actually exists. But it's quite clearly also like meant to. Um, it's it's Pierre's libido sort of uh, externalized. Oh, I'm getting so this is this is it. Oh yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And in the novel, he calls it uh, uh the terror stone, <laughs> and the protagonist actually like sits under it, the interstice there, and you know when he's, and he says, you know, if what I'm about about to do is wrong, then God, you know, crush me beneath this stone. And of course, God is <laughs> mute, doesn't he? So the stone, the stone is in that's in um, well, the not in the novel, it's called the Memnon. So I actually don't know. Some scholars have written about it, but I'm surprised that there isn't more about it. That's that's called Balance Rock. It's in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where Melville, um, where Melville lived, and I'm, I'm, one thousand percent certain that that was Melville's like real world reference for that, for that thing. But mm-hmm. but that's an example of you know, uh, uh, if you're not in a philosophical mood, like, or you don't you you just walk right by the oh that's that's cool. If you're if you're in a <laughs> if you're in a deep like if you're experiencing um an incursion of the real which pierre is at the time then that rock suddenly of course pierre in french means rock <laughs> so it quite it's quite literally <laughs> he's punning on that but so it's quite literally a thing from 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 inner space and so i think that that's what 
that's what 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 Zizek is kind of most interested in the way in which these these sublime objects these these things from inner space are externalized and in so doing they manifest an imminent um antagonism or contradiction right mm. that's why okay, they, that's why that... they'd be extant because they're not it's neither fully uh, external or fully internal it's a relation of you know intimate exteriority mm-hmm. yeah, the the character becomes externalized and the and the outside becomes internalized yeah yeah and they're and they're i mean that's one example there there are two others in, in the novel of these of these you know these sublime objects being generated by the you know the the anamorphic gaze of of the um of of of, of pierre Todd argue, Todd argues right the and he's right that the gaze is not it's not the act of looking but of being looked at but in a way sometimes they're kind of one and the same thing because the object that's looking back at you in the gaze is it is not yourself in in the sense of ego but it is your subjectivity like gazing back at you right mm-hmm. so it is a kind of confrontation with it is a kind of looking at and simultaneously looking looking back So I think that to a certain extent, like that's, that's undoubtedly um, true that he, he finds examples that, and I think this is why sometimes he'll say, uh, I mean, he, he'll admit this, like, oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see the full movie or I didn't see, I didn't read the whole book, but, um, but it's like, he gets, he, he gets an idea and he just has to, he has to run with it. But I do think that the examples that he uses to illustrate the theory, I, I don't think anyone does it better than he does. And so I think that he finds kind of similar to how he his work traverses all different kinds of you know disciplinary fields and and um, you know, is it humanities? Is it social science? Um, I think it, and I you know this, like for better or for worse, I think, he he treats sort of just like text in in a similar way not that he doesn't um you know I talked earlier about you know he likes genre fiction but um and i think the same goes for 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 film but it's that he doesn't see this text is doing philosophy or this text is doing psychoanalysis and this literary text is doing you know happens to be th- I, mm-hmm. I i think for him the literature is all the literature the film it's always doing theory it, mm-hmm. it it can't help but but do theory so it's not so much that here's for me it's not so much here's an example that we can just sort of ruthlessly appropriate and plug into the machine because for him like the machine wouldn't be able to function if it weren't for these these examples that illustrate you know how the machine how the machine works so maybe that's they're almost like concrete universals or something like, you know, like the form I think yeah that's yeah I, th- I think that's a good way to think about it. So but I do think I I haven't had it where I've you know sent him something or or written something um and then he sort of uh you know responds to it. I know uh Levi Bryant uh published I think so Slavoj has a couple of critiques of of his version, uh, Bryant's version of object-oriented ontology. And he, I think he said something similar to, to Gabriel, like, um, because Bryant does respect 
I mean, he and reads Zizek, but he was like, I don't feel like he read my my argument. I feel like he kind of just took what he what he wanted from it. Um, so I think that that there is something fair about that. But by the same token, I I don't think that you know if you read if you read his extended interpretation of like you know Henry James's Wings of the Dove, for instance, like it's not you know it, it's not that he's he's interested in that just because it's it's exemplifying um you know the ethics of psychoanalysis or something like that mm -hmm. yeah i feel like he wouldn't do it so often if it didn't have its own utility to it yeah yeah i think that's right yeah. i think that's why he keeps coming back to examples like antigone um hamlet in the same way that 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 uh lacan did because his his work again doesn't I don't think he really sees a distinction similar to like a high and low. I don't think he really sees much of a distinction between, you know, a literary work and an actual analysis. Not to say that if you asked him, he he would say, of course, there's a difference. But I think the work that the theoretical work that's being done there, I think, is 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 pretty much not the same, but um, they're both doing theoretical work. Mm -hmm. So everything is kind of theoretical for him. Mm hmm. Like even a toilet, for instance, like the toilet, uh, I mean, it's obviously not literary, but uh, yeah. it's it's so like the types of toilet are so greatly demonstrated, like theoretically, that uh, it's not just like uh, you're saying, um, here's the way like, you know, ideology works. It's, it's that the toilet is itself a manifestation of ideology. Yeah. But you could also see how somebody could 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 come and say, I'm not saying that this is my perspective, but you could see how somebody could say, oh, look, um, even though he's talking about, um, you know, nonsensical signifiers, he's attributing mean, meaning to right. Right. So right. from from the toilet, we can glean that um, this because it because it go like, you know, the, the German uh, toilet, you know, you inspect your your shit like before you flush it that tells yeah. you something about german society or you know anglo-saxon you know it's it, it's water-based it, it it floats it's very practical right so so you somebody could say well um aren't you aren't you are isn't that a kind of hermeneutics right um mm. i would so say I that person has never used a german toilet before because if you do <laughs> you can only think why <laughs> yeah you're god why <laughs> yeah I tried. I I I I tried not to think about that when I was in when I was in Heidelberg. I was like, I was just like, just let just just do it. That's more like the French approach, where it's like the you know, rush like the severing of the head. Just totally, yeah. Off. Oh, yeah. I I appreciate that one. Yeah. Just <laughs> what you uh, say? Just flush the sh just get yeah, just yeah. get rid of it. Yeah. The shit is neither heard nor seen yeah. nor heard from. Yeah. The the French the French toilet is the equivalent of a guillotine. Yeah, yeah. There's not all <laughs> that one. Oh, but yeah, actually, I think that's a good way of moving into maybe more of the specific ways that Zizek does speak about literature and Shakespeare, maybe more more of these examples. Like, yeah, one thing that we really enjoyed recently was uh, in Looking Awry when he says that Richard II, the play by Shakespeare, proves beyond any doubt that Shakespeare had read Lacan. Yeah. And you find also you find all this also in Moby Dick that that surely Melville read Lacan. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's funny is that I'm actually, I have to write, I've been procrastinated and I have to write to, to Danny Nobis and see if he can ask, because <laughs> he's in contact with, with Jacqueline Miller. And so I kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to just sort of like approach Miller cold, um, but 
he would he out of anyone would know whether or not Lacan had read Melville because mm. if I've I've looked through all, even the unpublished seminars, there's no mention so far as I've been able to to find in his written works about about Melville. But mm. I can't think of a more Lacanian <laughs> author, so it's kind of a similar thing, right? Although in the case, th- that's not even as I mean, that's different from your scenario or from the scenario that that Zizek talks about with Richard II, because Lacan could have read uh, Melville either in tra- in French translation or or in English. But I think that this is part of why, um, you know, somebody who's, let's say, a, a historicist um, critic would be so frustrated by Zizek because, um, the, I mean, it's so clearly false <laughs> empirically <laughs> right i mean it's impossible um although going back to the indiana jones movie maybe you know yeah, he took yeah, the dial true. of destiny and and uh and saw beckett <laughs> but but um uh or wait that or you know he shakespeare had read lacan but it's 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 kind of this this notion that no these 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 ideas or these sort of formations um existed prior to the sort of historical epoch in which mm-hmm. you know they exist so not everything is is based upon socio-historical context right because even though there are different orders of the symbolic right what what's something like what a historicist can't countenance is that is the sort of kernel of the real that that returns throughout the various different um epochs in different forms because you're under different symbolic orders mm-hmm. um but but the but the larger point about uh, you know he says this about uh, Kafka too right he said like Kafka he like Kafka for him is more postmodern than any than any postmodernist but if you're going by um, you know a strict historical understanding of literary periods right it's ridiculous to say that Ka- you could say he's a precursor to postmodernism but you can't say that he's a postmodernist but you know, Zizek does because his the whole point, and his argument is not is not a temporal one. His argument is that because in Kafka, the problem you'd think is that you know God is is absent, right? That's the sort of modernist problem, and and Kafka's writing at the height of modernism. But no, actually, the problem is the postmodern problem where God is too close. <laughs> it's 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 the proximity of the object that's causing the anxiety that we've gotten sort of too. Um, too too close to it and so the kafka world is a world that is overrun by it has no meaning because it's just overrun by jouissance by 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 santoms that overawe any sort of sense of of meaning or um or or purpose um and so yeah that's why he says it, it all goes to his his interest in 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 hegel and retroactivity right um i mean the lacanian concept of that would be the the operate coup right when something something you know triggers it sort of back to the past in a way right and so he's you know you can't say that um even authors who came before kafka right um once kafka comes along even authors before him can be can be kafka-esque but they can't be kafka-esque before the before the event of the arrival of kafka has happened right so maybe we can uh, we can turn to uh, your writing specifically on Moby Dick because uh, you say it's so it so like brilliantly demonstrates the con. Yeah. So I mean, I'm I'm working on finishing up this book that's on. Uh...
and show all that you're going. And so on and so on. And so on and so on.